0: This is Cued Up Storytelling with Heart. I'm John Sepulveda. You're listening to The Trials of Marvin Much, And among other things, it's a mystery story about a brutal murder and a suspect who might be innocent. So if you haven't listened to the first two episodes, go back to chapter one. And just in case you have, but maybe you've forgotten a bit, here's a little catch up. We first met Marvin Much when he was released from prison in 2016 after serving 41 years for a crime he says he did not commit. We've heard about the crime, the murder of 13-year-old Cassie Riley in 1974. She was killed, drowned in a shallow creek in Union City, a Bay Area suburb. 18-year-old Marvin was arrested for the murder two weeks later, after his sister Valerie identified him to police. Marvin and Valerie were separated after the arrest, but both would become entangled in the Cassie Riley murder case, Marvin as the defendant, and Valerie as the prosecution's key witness. Here's KQED reporter Alex Emsley.
1: The night Marvin was arrested, two Union City detectives interrogated him for hours, beginning at about two in the morning. He tells them he'd been at the park the afternoon Cassie Riley disappeared. He says he was there looking for another girl, Linda, but he couldn't find her and he left. He may have seen Cassie Riley. He's not sure.
2: I wouldn't say it was more than eight minutes that I was out of my car, and I drove off.
1: But the detectives don't think that's the whole story.
2: They said, we have witnesses that saw you with the victim.
1: Then comes the hard shove. One of the detectives says they have evidence tying Marvin to Cassie Riley's murder. Your footprints. The footprints were from a kind of shoe Marvin didn't own, a pair of Converse All-Stars. The detectives didn't tell him that. All they told him was that they found his footprints on the creek bank, near Cassie Riley's body.
2: But to Marvin, it didn't make sense. He hadn't been down to the creek. I said, well, you don't have my footprints because I wasn't there. Those
1: footprints would become crucial to Marvin's defense. They might prove someone else was there, that someone else was the killer. This is the Trials of Marvin Much. Is it possible
2: that he's not guilty?
3: Prosecutors and police often work backwards from a conclusion. This is our suspect. How do we prove his guilt?
2: So you saw me at the park. This is your evidence. You saw me at the park.
4: I didn't think the evidence was sufficient to justify convicting a young man of first degree murder.
2: I did not think for 1 minute that I was not going to walk out of there.
1: Chapter 3, The People V Much. My name is James McWilliams. Around the time Marvin was arraigned, he met a young defense attorney. In 1970, I joined the Alameda County Public Defender's Office. In the fall of 1974, The murder of 13-year-old Cassie Riley was front-page news. Much was arrested
0: on October 8th, 13 days after the murder in a drainage ditch. The girl's body, naked from the ankles to the neck, was lying on its back against the side of a deep ditch. The cause of death was drowning, following severe blows to the head. The Oakland Tribune, October 16th, 1974. McWilliams called
4: his boss. And I said, Jim about me for this. It was a case that had gotten a lot of attention in the press, yes, I did want the case. You know, I tried many, many murder cases and many other cases. And I never want to think that I'm the judge and jury on this part. The question that I have is, could he not be guilty? Is it possible that he's not guilty, that this is a mistake?
1: And I always thought, yeah, this could be possible. Marvin pleaded not guilty. McWilliams started preparing his defense, and he got to know Marvin. He was smart. He, I thought he was good-looking as a young
4: man. He had a certain twinkle about him, a certain liveliness. He was well-spoken, and he was positive. You know, even though as an 18-year-old in custody charged with a very serious murder, Many people would be in a state of terror and almost
1: frozen. He seemed prepared to to be himself. Marvin was so confident, he ignored some of McWilliams' advice.
2: He asked me to cut my hair. And I wouldn't do it because I wanted to be able to, when I got out, still have my hair that the girls liked. That's how sure I was because I didn't commit the crime. And uh, this is going to prove itself out.
1: McWilliams started piecing together a timeline. Marvin was seen leaving the park by a police officer who took down his license plate and trailed him for a few blocks. That was between 5.35 and 5.40 p.m. McWilliams found a friend of Cassie's who said she'd seen her alive at the park after 6 p.m. And McWilliams found a couple of neighbors who said they'd heard a loud child scream sometime after six. Again, at least half an hour after Marvin had left. But there was one witness McWilliams couldn't find. In the months leading up to the trial, Marvin's sister, Valerie Much, seemed to have vanished. Valerie was the prosecution's key witness. Remember, She called police and identified Marvin.
5: Marvin knows something and doesn't even know he knows it.
1: So I called the police. And Marvin quickly went from possible witness to prime suspect. It wasn't just because Valerie identified him as the man seen talking to Cassie Riley the day she was killed. And it wasn't just because of his arrest record. Valerie's testimony was crucial because of something she told police when they searched her house. After an officer asked if Marvin had recently come home wearing wet, or muddy clothes.
5: I said, yeah, I came home wet, came home muddy. And they said when, and I said, I don't know. <laughs> More than once, I know that. They wanted me to say that he came home when Cassie was killed. And I didn't, I couldn't say that because I didn't think that it that it was that day and I still don't
1: but she couldn't be certain it wasn't that day and while other witnesses put Marvin at the park and saw him talking to Cassie Riley Valerie was the only one whose testimony could place Marvin in the creek drowning Cassie Marvin's had several explanations about why he had on occasion come home with wet pants and muddy shoes. He dropped his keys and got wet looking for them. He lost a hubcap and got wet looking for that. He got wet at his security job.
2: I got dirty all the time on that job because it was outside and I was walking on on foot. Uh, So there was a lot of times when I got mud on my shoes. And so to me, it was a non-issue. It turned out to be a big thing.
1: The case would come to depend on it. Marvin's damp pants, his muddy shoes. And the person who saw him come home wet and muddy was his sister. But where had Valerie gone? To figure that out, you have to go back to the day after Marvin was arrested, when their mother, who struggled with mental and physical illness, got out of the hospital. 16-year-old Valerie was waiting at home.
5: I thought my mom was going to be really pissed. I didn't think that. I didn't think I had done anything wrong, but I knew she was gonna be upset about, about Marvin being arrested. She told me that blood is thicker than water and you never turn in your family. You stick together no matter what. And it was like, I didn't turn in my family We spent a little bit of time, a few days, I don't know, maybe a week, talking about how awful I was. And the newspapers were saying things like the star witness and stuff like that.
1: And she was the star witness. Marvin's defense attorney, James McWilliams, knew it. I can't see the case without it. So you eliminate Valerie Much,
4: you eliminate the case.
5: And in my little pea brain, I decided that if Marvin was arrested because I did something and the district attorney is using me to hurt Marvin, the easiest thing to do was to eliminate myself from the situation. And so I decided I would commit suicide.
1: She took a bunch of pills. Disoriented, Valerie ended up at school, where she hadn't been for weeks, trying to say goodbye to a friend. A counselor noticed her in a stupor and called an
5: ambulance. They took me to the hospital and pumped my stomach, and then from there I went to juvenile hall.
1: The records here are hazy. The way Valerie remembers it, she was put in juvenile hall to protect her from her mother. She was also on probation, like Marvin. She often ran away from foster care and got into trouble. So she may have been held on a probation violation. Either way, she wasn't in juvenile hall very long, maybe a week or two, when she got a visit from prosecutor John Taylor and district attorney's investigator, Phil Fry.
5: They took me to lunch and that's when I learned that they were going to take me to Phil Fry's house.
1: Valerie thought it was her new foster home, that she was now a part of the Fry family.
5: I went to live with Phil Fry and his family.
3: This is completely improper for a prosecution witness to be housed, fed, and taken in by a member of the prosecution team.
1: That's attorney Susan Rutberg, who got involved in Marvin's case decades later.
3: It's completely unethical for a prosecutor to manipulate a teenage witness in that way.
1: Maybe for the first time ever, Valerie was living in a stable home.
5: Living with them, for me, was all about them keeping me safe. It, It wasn't really to me about testifying or I was a witness.
1: It seems like an unspoken quid pro quo, an exchange.
5: I know that we talked a lot about Marvin.
1: She's talking for months to the district attorney's investigator.
5: I asked a lot about you don't you know questions like you don't really think you did that, do you? And they always said yes. And I asked them a lot. But um,
1: Did they talk about, did, uh, Mr. Fry or I guess anybody involved at this point, did you talk about your testimony
6: at all? Mm-hmm.
3: A lot. It's misconduct to coach a witness, obviously. It's misconduct to offer a witness anything in exchange for her testimony, unless that is disclosed to the defense, and then the defense is supposed to disclose that to the court. That didn't happen in this case.
1: That's because Marvin's defense attorney didn't know where Valerie was. He tried to get the judge to force the prosecution to give up Valerie's address, six weeks after her suicide attempt. To no avail. Months later, notes from the public defender's investigator show the defense was still looking for Valerie, but the prosecution wouldn't tell. So the jury never heard about it
6: wow, that would have been, you know, my goodness, <laughs> living, you know.
1: John McQueary was juror number 11.
6: I mean, it would have created some doubt in my mind, especially to her, uh, on, about her testimony. I would have thought that would be grounds for a mistrial or, or at least a, uh, you know, a reopening of the case somewhere. That's what I would think today, you know, if I knew that fact.
1: But he didn't. Valerie took the witness stand and testified. Marvin came home wet and muddy sometime over a five-day period. It may have been the day of Cassie Riley's murder.
5: I testified, not very long after that, I was sent to the group home. And I remember being totally shocked.
1: She felt misled. The family she thought was taking her in was done with her.
5: And I didn't stay there very long at the group home.
1: She ran away and was out on her own before the trial ended. Were you used by the prosecution in this case?
5: Absolutely. They played on my need to have a family, my need to be normal, or at least appear normal. And it was all just a big lie, a big game. playing chess, none of us meant anything. Just a big game. And they were determined that they would win.
1: Deputy DA John Taylor was one of Alameda County's top prosecutors, reassigned from Oakland for the Cassie Riley murder. He declined a repeated request for an interview. He says he simply doesn't remember the case. But the trial transcripts show how he built the case against Marvin and presented it to the jury. It's subtle. Taylor never makes direct accusations. He never tells the jury Marvin much killed Cassie Riley. Not outright, not verbally.
2: He was surgical with the law. He used it like a ninja.
1: Taylor doesn't have direct evidence. No murder weapon, no witnesses to Cassie Riley's killing. The case predates DNA testing by 10 years. What he does have is a web of circumstantial evidence. Marvin's work schedule gave him plenty of time to be at the park. He was seen there, talking to Cassie Riley. Police found water smudge receipts from the day of the murder when they searched Marvin's house and Valerie's testimony, the wet pants and muddy boots. Juries are allowed to give circumstantial evidence that tends to prove a fact the same weight as direct evidence, a series of facts that taken on their own might mean nothing but depending on how you connect them, they can paint a picture. The picture John Taylor wants the jury to see, Marvin had the means and opportunity to murder Cassie Riley. Defense attorney James McWilliams wants the jury to see something else. The prosecution's timeline is off. Marvin left the park just after 5.30, and the defense argues Cassie Riley was killed after that. One of her friends saw her alive after six. Neighbors heard a several second, high-pitched scream. Somebody who
4: had a home near the creek where the body was found at around maybe 6.30, heard a, somebody screaming out. If that was true, then Marvin would have been gone by that time. And there were the footprints. Well, I thought there was strong exonerating physical evidence. There were footprint casts near where the body was found. It was clear that the victim made some of the print impressions and overlaying those impressions was another person's shoe print in the mud. Definitely not made by Marvin Much; made by a third person who had a different size foot and a different style of shoe. I thought that was powerful defense evidence. But there was a problem with that evidence. Sadly, the
1: evidence was collected by a member of the sheriff's department who was fired. He was fired later. We don't know why, but it had nothing to do with the Cassie Riley case. He testified, but any time McWilliams tried to ask him anything about the footprints, the prosecutor objected.
2: Here's how Marvin remembers it. Can you tell us if they overlapped each other? It was obvious from the pictures, one was under the other and then on top, so whoever was wearing them tennis shoes was there at the time the victim was alive. And it was obviously a struggle. I'm sorry, he's not an expert in footprints sustained.
1: The jury heard McWilliams' questions, but they didn't get the answers because the criminologist wasn't allowed to
2: explain. Yeah, but he's the one you guys used to make the casts, and uh, he's the guy. Well, I'm sorry, so the judge sustained. The footprints indicated someone
1: else, not Marvin, had been there when Cassie Riley was killed, but the jury never really heard that. It wasn't
2: looking good for Marvin. I didn't know that it was possible that you could convict somebody and not have evidence. That would be, seem to be the only thing that you need in a trial is evidence. For
1: his closing argument, prosecutor John Taylor brought props, a large pegboard easel, and 16 puzzle pieces. It was his chance to connect all the circumstantial evidence and convince the jury it added up to Marvin's guilt. Each puzzle piece represented a different piece of evidence. Valerie's testimony, water smudge receipts, other witnesses who saw Marvin in the area. Taylor attached each puzzle piece to the pegboard as he reminded the jury of its significance. The drama left an impact on juror John McQueary.
6: I believe that I had made my mind up when I went to the deliberations based on how Mr. Taylor presented his summation.
1: When he finished, Prosecutor John Taylor's makeshift puzzle revealed the word guilty, above the name Marvin Much. He never said it out loud. The puzzle, the evidence, did.
6: He took a lot of fuzzy, vague points and brought them together so that there wasn't a reasonable doubt. I can honestly say right now, um, I believe he was guilty. And I, there's no doubt in my mind based on the evidence that I, I heard and saw. This is exactly what the
2: system does. We can't figure this out. Well, let's make something up. How about if we say he did this or he did that? And then uh, they, they actually have these conversations and they come into the court and they say, let me tell you how it happened. Let me, let me put the puzzle together for you.
1: After five days, the jury reached its verdict.
2: I did not think for one minute that I was not gonna walk out of there.
1: The verdict? Marvin was guilty of first-degree murder. They read the verdict. For killing Cassie Riley.
2: I felt like a lid was being closed on my my life. Uh, A good part of me just died.
4: It was painful and sorrowful to lose the case. I was disappointed and saddened by it. I didn't think the evidence was sufficient to justify convicting a young man of first-degree murder.
3: I have tried several murder cases, and I have never seen a case go down where there was so little evidence against the perpetrator. You could only think that it was prejudice, bias, or misconduct that led to this conviction.
1: Marvin was headed to prison on a seven-to-life term. For Marvin, it seemed like a long time. To Cassie Riley's family, the possibility that he'd be released in seven years was an insult. But that didn't happen. The system was about to change. Next time on The Trials of Marvin Munch.
2: Recently passed laws and a statewide initiative have added to most prison terms considerably. It was really a war zone back then. Already our efforts to crack down on career criminals
4: Organized crime, drug pushers, and to enforce tougher sentences and paroles are having effect. California prisons are bulging at the seams.
1: You could do everything right for your entire time in prison and really have no hope, no real hope of going going home.
2: Everything was hope and then a hope that was dashed and then another hope and then a hope that was dashed. You are a stranger in a strange land. And at the end, it wasn't a system that struck the most harmful blow. It was myself. I did it to myself.
0: The Trials of Marvin Mutch was reported by Alex Emsley and Adam Grossberg. They also produced a documentary film about Marvin's life in California's criminal justice system. You can watch it at trialsofmarvinmutch.org. If you're curious about this story and our investigation and you want to learn more, Go to our website. You'll find documents related to the case, photos, court papers, and case notes. The Trials of Marvin Much is edited by Sonia Dirk. Senior editors are Julia McAvoy and David Weir. Senior producers of Q'd Up: Holly Kernan and Ethan Lindsay. I'm John Sepulveda, and you know the drill. You can listen and subscribe to Q'd Up
5: wherever you get your podcasts.